Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast, and don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedroni, and with me is Brian the Angry Man Clayman. Today's episode promises to be a good one in that we'll be talking about policing in the big city. And with us, we have our uh, special guest, Dave McCormick. Superintendent, now retired Dave McCormick, is a 36-year veteran of the Toronto Police Service where he worked various units, including uniform, investigations, plainclothes, major crimes, youth services, the pawn squad, and complaint investigations. Working with professional standards, Dave appreciated the importance of maintaining the public's trust while providing fair, impartial treatment to the members of the Toronto Service. And to that end, Dave was a frequent and regular guest lecturer at the Toronto Police College, where he had an opportunity to instill that same appreciation onto new recruits. Dave is also a certified Level 400 Incident Commander, and he is part of the National Incident Commanders Working Group Association. To that end, Dave was the Incident Commander during Occupy Toronto, a number of New Year's Eve celebrations, Caravana Festival, and a bunch of other parades that go on in the city uh, through the summer. 2015, he was the incident commander for the Pan Am Games and the Parapan Am Games. Uh, Dave served as the unit commander for Tavis. He was also unit commander at 12 Division, 13 Division, 52 Division, and it was during his time at 52 Division that Dave truly understood and embraced the necessity of strong police and private par- sector partnerships. He has worked closely with members of the Downtown Toronto Commercial Real Estate Security Group Leadership Group, as well as all the key people at locations deemed tourist attractions and critical infrastructure in the Toronto Downtown Core. Dave is also a recipient of the Police Exemplary Service Medal, the 30-Year Bar, and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. Wow. Holy smokes, that's a long and uh, distinguished career, Mr. McCormick. Welcome to the podcast. I'm going to... Uh, Turn it over to my friend Brian for uh, a quick introduction himself. Say hello to our uh, listeners and talk about what's been keeping him up at night since we last uh, last spoke. Thanks, Lute. And you know what? Uh, I think we are ready to say goodbye to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Hope <laughs> to see you next week. There's no time left. What a bio. <laughs> Anyways, I am thrilled to have uh, Superintendent McCormick with us today uh, on our podcast. I've known Dave for a long time, uh, 10, 12 years right now. I met him when he was down at 52 Division, and he truly is one of the good guys. He is a, an accomplished police officer. He is a, a leader in the police and security community, and he's a passionate believer in uh, the importance of partnerships. So thrilled to have Dave here with us today. Dave, welcome, and uh, we'll be nice to you, and I'll try and control Luciano so he doesn't get uh, crazy as he usually does. What's been keeping me up at night? For a change, I'm not going to talk about south of the border because that seems to be relatively under control now that the new administration is in place and we don't hear every moment of the day about what President Doofus has done. But one of the things that is keeping me up at night, I'm a little bit concerned, is the lack of honesty and transparency in our response to COVID here north of the border, especially with the vaccines. It's not really a surprise that we find ourselves where we are right now with the vaccine situation. But I think the thing that's most frustrating for me and a lot of people is that you can't get the truth out of anyone. Just really want to understand what the situation is, uh, what the plan is. There's going to be ample time when this is over to uh, point fingers and cast blame. But right now, I just want to have I want to understand what the plan is so that we could go on with our lives and get businesses back to normal. And it goes back to a common theme in our podcast, the importance of a clear and honest communications during a crisis. And I think a lot of what we've seen during COVID is everything you shouldn't do in terms of messaging when managing an emergency event. So that's it. Nice and simple. Don't want to drill on because we've got a great guest and a great topic today. But over to you, Luke. That's got to be one of the shortest segments you've had uh, since we started this, so it is refreshing, and maybe the start of a new year. 
is a nude Brian. <laughs> I'm going to carry that theme. Uh, I'm tired of talking about the U.S. Uh, and I'm tired of talking about COVID. But there are things starting to happen that I think play right into the discussion we're about to have uh, with David regarding the city that he used to used to help keep safe and secure. And, you know, that is basically all the related or collateral issues that are now coming out in relation to COVID, whether it be people out of work. Uh, we talk about the opioid crisis uh, that's go- going up. The suicide rates are going up. There's a whole new element now with the organized crime groups targeting vaccinations. You know, how real is that? How realistic is that threat to to the people in Toronto? I don't know. But these are the types of discussions I think, uh, you know, people are interested in, in, in hearing about and understanding really to what level the city is, is operating at when it comes to criminal activity. We talk about increased shootings and all. We can go anywhere with this topic. So I'm going to really turn it over to David now and let you start the conversation in terms of what you've seen the city turn into since you've left, and not so long ago, but uh, long enough that you've had the chance to reflect, I would think, as opposed to what you were doing and then what you see now. And Luke, not that I'd like to interrupt. However, Dave, just for our uh, benefit of our audience, which are not just people in Toronto, but all over Canada, and I looked at some of the demographics, we actually have we have several listeners in India. Can't understand yeah. that, but thank you, <laughs> India, certainly in the U.S., so Dave, maybe as you start your discussion, maybe you could tell us a little about a bit about the Toronto Police Service, its size, its uh, capabilities, a little bit about 52 Division downtown core where you policed. Oh, absolutely, Brian. First and foremost, I'd like to say hello to both of you gentlemen, and thank you very much for having me on this podcast. I was uh, quite flattered when you asked me, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you and sharing some of the thoughts and some of the experiences that we've had collectively and individually over our various careers and uh, are coming together in the downtown core. And Brian, I hate to say this, but we've been friends and uh, professionals in this business for uh, over 15 to 16 years, buddy, so we're getting a little bit older than you're willing to admit. <laughs> in a long time. Uh, but it's been a good time it's been a great time and i want to circle back to what keeps me up at night because i want to have a little shot of that as well and certainly the things that you both spoke about keep me up as well and the shutting down of the economy and so forth and the way things are being handled and information and misinformation but luci led me right down the road the shootings in toronto and not just toronto enough in the area surrounding toronto from niagara all the way out to the east and the north uh, certainly keep me up at night because i see a vast different approach in the way that police officers are interacting with known gang members. And I want to emphasize known gang members, as opposed to just randomly stopping people in high-priority neighborhoods or marginalized neighborhoods for the sake of stopping them. Unequivocally, that's wrong. Racial profiling is wrong. Absolutely, 100%. I will take that to the grave. That is wrong. But there are things that the police can be doing to interact with known gangsters who they know are carrying weapons. But They feel that their hands are cuffed Mm -hmm. right now by legislation, by history, by the naysayers who have been pointing at them for so long, branding them as uh, racist or whatever, that they feel that they can't do their job and be supported in doing so. And I think the downside to that, and I'm not talking about carding. Carding is a totally different issue, the collection and the keeping of information and identification for long periods of time. But interacting with the criminals is essential. And I don't see that being done. And the reason I, I'm fully aware from speaking to the guys and girls that used to work for me is that they don't feel that anybody on any level has their back. And they're saying, why would I want to risk my career, my pension? I have obligations to my family. I'm just going to go and do my radio call to radio call to radio call. And the criminals know that. The gangsters know that. And that's why I believe we're seeing the proliferation of handguns and shootings in and around the Toronto area. You know, that's so true, Dave, what you say, the uh, rank and file and the police officers I know and the police officers in my family are saying the same thing. They feel that they're out there on their own and people don't have their back, neither the community nor the political leaders that sort of operate the police. And I read a really interesting piece in uh, Axio, I think, yesterday about the uh, in Washington, January 6th, and how the police union of the Capitol Police officers have going to take a vote of non-confidence because they felt that they've been left out to dry, that there was so much concern about political correctness that they were out there during that battle, which they say was like a medieval-type battle of hand-to-hand, and they were getting all sorts of conflicting reports or, or orders from the command. Put away your nightsticks. Take out your nightsticks. Don't use lethal force. Use uh, less than lethal. Use pepper spray. Back off. These are our uh, brothers. We can't be seen uh, using excessive force. And I think we have to give police officers a clear message because we expect them to do a tough job. But if we're not going to support them, they're not going to be there for us when we need it. Yeah, that's a, that's a distinct possibility. And that would certainly be something I would not want to see. 
So what's driving that? Has the training changed? Has, has the strategies changed? Or is it really, I mean, in my opinion, it's politicalization of the job. It's not viewed anymore as a tool of the government to enforce laws and go out there and help communities. It's really being used as a political tool by politicians who don't even understand what, what it's supposed to do, I think. Yeah, I noticed Steve sort of is nodding, so I think he sort of fixed it. But he's a seasoned investigator, so he knows how to get to the bottom <laughs> of what you're trying to say. Yeah, well, for, certainly, Luch, it's, it, there's myriad reasons why we are where we are today in and around the, the Toronto area. And it's many of the things that you just hinted upon. So going back to that uh, police services board, police service relationship, the police services boards are mandated with setting the policy of the police services, not just Toronto. That's that's pretty much their realm. And it's up to the chief of police and the police service command officers to set the actual operational methodology in which they then fulfill those policies. So the board it certainly brings into play what it is that the police can and can't do from a policy standpoint. But it's up to the chief as to how that actually gets done. And back in at about 2016 and, and the years leading up to that, certainly carding was a huge issue. And it wasn't just a huge issue in Toronto. It was a huge issue throughout Ontario. But I think Toronto was under the microscope. And month after month after month, the same small group of people would come in front of the board and they would make their deputations. And eventually the board listened. And, and a lot of what they had to say was good. But a lot of it was essentially just that the police are bad and the police need to stop doing this to people because it's the same people over and over and over again. And to a certain extent, that was true. It was the same people over and over and over again. And the police always argued that there is intellectual uh, knowledge that is to be gained or intelligence knowledge that is to be gained by stopping and interacting with and speaking to certain people in certain uh, marginalized neighborhoods. A lot of the wrong people were getting stopped and a lot of information was being kept. And that was wrong. So very well thought out to move forward and eliminate uh, what was carding that had no basis really for that interaction in the first place. And I can't sit here and tell you, gentlemen, that it went too far in one direction or it didn't go far enough because everybody's going to have their own opinion on that that covers the entire gamut. But there was a lot of things at play in Toronto at that time. They were bringing out a report called PACER, uh, the Police and Community Engagement Report. There was other studies being done. They were studying the right number of police officers that should be in Toronto. Uh, as well as the uh, provincial government of the day under Premier Kathleen Wynne brought in Ontario Regulation 58416. It was thrown together rather quickly, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that. And although, again, well-intentioned, I think it just further muddied the waters. And it left police officers across the province now not knowing what they can and what they can't do and essentially having to go up to somebody that they know is a gangster and quite likely carrying a weapon, if not a firearm, and saying, you don't have to speak to me because I don't have the grounds to arrest you. And by the way, I have to give you a receipt that tells you my name. And on some of those receipts, I've even seen it for a while they had, and here's the phone number of the OIPRD in case you would like to complain about my conduct. I think anybody in any occupation put into a situation like that would be hesitant to put themselves into perceived peril, real or otherwise. And that's what we saw. So the causes are far ranging. Did that aspect of policing need to be cleaned up and reined in? Absolutely, 100%. It needed to be because of the aspects of racial profiling. But intelligence-led policing in those neighborhoods and against those members, race aside, who you know are gangsters and you can back that up with intelligence, good intelligence, the police officers need to be engaging with those people. And I think that we would see a downside in the number of shootings if that were to take place. That requires an awful lot of training and a bit of a change of the mindset that's out there right now. You know, I, I've seen over the last 40 years of my career an evolution of policing. When I started off, the way policing was practiced is completely different than what it looks like today. And quite honestly, I think the change, a lot of the change has been positive. But Dave, would you agree with me that we've made it so difficult for police leaders at the senior level to do what they're trained to do, and that's to be a tact to tactically respond based on the scenarios they're presented with, because they have to think. And I think of what happened in Washington and what I read in that report yesterday is they're worried about the political backlash that clouds their operational thinking. And I think we've made it so difficult. We put a noose around police leaders that everyone is not everyone is not served properly. The community, the rank and file police officers, because the decisions are based on popularity and what the political masters are going to say. And don't get me wrong, you need to have oversight. You need to have civilian oversight. There's nothing wrong with it, but you need also strong leaders to push back and say, "No, this is wrong." If we look at January 6th in Washington. I understand that you don't want to alienate the base. 
However, tactically, this is what we need to do to prepare. Is there not a lot of uh, confusion amongst leaders about they know what to do, but they thinking way too much what the political outcome is going to be? I think that's certainly come into play in some situations for sure, Brian, without a doubt. I think as far as your police leaders keeping up with the current policies and the training that flows from that, that is crucial. I think while you were talking there, all I could think about was the incident command training that I went through and how it puts you in a position as an incident commander to not bulletproof you because you're always going to be responsible for your decisions that you make. But when you're sitting as an incident commander, whether on the ground or in a major incident command center or whatever the case may be, I mean, you have an operational plan that, assuming this is a, a planned event and not a spontaneous event, you have an operational plan that was prepared uh, on your behalf that acts as a guideline for how you and the people working for you out on the street at the actual protest, demonstration, riot, whatever the case may be, or even something festive like the Santa Claus Parade or whatever that guides your actions. And now you have to deviate from that should it go sideways. You need to change your plan. You need to be able to do that. And that comes with experience knowledge and having the right people in key positions to roll out your plan for you. But sitting as an incident commander, you ought not to be telling your people on the streets to draw your batons, put away your batons, draw your weapon, put away your weapon, do this, don't do that. Simon says, clap your hands, turn around. That's not your role. Your role is to get things done at a much higher level. So your role as an incident commander may be to give the order that I want that front line moved back 20 meters. It is then up to your chiefs, uh, not chief of police, obviously, I mean, within the operational commands scenario, it's up to the chiefs on the street to get that to their sergeants or whomever is leading that section to then they decide what tactics they are going to use to move that line back. That's not your role as the incident commander sitting in the major incident command center. And, and all of these things are being captured either on audio tape or by uh, a scribe who's, who's making notes of what and when you put forward as your next command. But uh, you can't be operating at a granular level, making types of decisions that are tactically involved or tactically based and be an efficient incident commander, in my opinion. And people that do that, perhaps, are too worried, Brian, about exactly what you said, getting themselves into trouble, maybe not getting that next promotion. What is my boss going to say? What is the mayor going to say? Et cetera. And you can't think like that. And maybe that's why uh, when they put us into those roles, they know that we're probably gone as far as we're going in our careers. We're, we're beyond promotable anymore, and we're, we're looking at the uh, the exit. And I had to remember something else crossed my mind, Brian, while you were saying all of that, was that um, I started out about 41 years ago. And I remember there was a phrase going around the police stations from the older guys at the time, uh, who really weren't that old as I look back on it, but they were to me at that time. And the phrase, I won't repeat it because it's crude, but it had to do with the job not being what the job used to be. And this that carried on uh, throughout my career. I always heard that, and I tried to dissuade my people from saying it because it really isn't. Yes, the job isn't what it was when I started 41 years ago, but the new people that are coming on today don't know that. And it's a great career, and it's a career that they're going to make the most of. And the leaders of the day from their front line, from their informal leaders on their platoons to their sergeants, to their staff sergeants, right up to the chief, need to remember that we can't taint. They ought not to be tainting the profession and the outlook of these young men and women that are joining for all of the right reasons. Because the world has changed. Policing has changed. And they don't know it as it being anything other than it is from the day that they join. So to tell them that the job is not what it used to be in much cruder fashion, uh, you're doing them a disservice. Let them go out and find their way, guide them, support them, provide them all of the tools, all of the training, all of your positive knowledge, experience, and help them be the police officers and the leaders of the future. Because God help us if we don't do that, because they're the ones that are going to be coming to help you and me and Luch when we need you down the road. I was just going to say, I was just going to add, Dave, those, those are great words and definitely, I think, of value to somebody getting onto the service, Mike. But I don't understand how someone would get into the into the job today, given the obstacles and challenges that are there before them, and get into the job knowing that they're going to be able to do a good job, right? Like you just said yourself that their hands are, are, are handcuffed by the system. The leadership is worried more about what are they going to get into trouble versus how they should be supporting their, their people on the street a lot more. And in my discussions with, with some of the, the officers that I know, and my brother's still on the force, they're frustrated by that. It, it leads them to be, they get onto a scene and, and, and potentially you get frozen, right? You don't know what to do. And, and that can cost you a life very, very literally, as we've seen in the States more, more so than here. It's costing guys' lives, guys' and girls' lives, because they're not 100% 
comfortable making those decisions. They think that they're being questioned every step of the way. So how do they overcome that? How do they become better officers? How do they survive? That certainly is a concern that we have, and I've always had it. I think, Luch, that in situations like that, they need to be very well trained. And, and there's different things between training and education are two different types of things. And the police officer that's being hired today is very different than the police officer that was hired when I started. Uh, education wasn't a huge component. Uh, education is a huge component now, but life experience, I think, is also something that is very important in the officers that are being uh, hired today. And I've seen phases throughout my career where the Toronto Police Service in particular put too much emphasis on education and not enough on life experience. Uh, so that you were hiring a bunch of people who were very, very intelligent, but couldn't, spot, couldn't speak to somebody even about something as simple as the weather. And it's crucial that our police officers are able to communicate with the members of the public that they're going to be engaging in um, happy or violent type situations. It's critical that they can communicate. As far as an officer freezing up on the scene, and that comes from being uncertain of whatever it is that they're uncertain of. And for anybody, it's going to be different. I think a lot of that can be addressed by good, proper, and repetitive training in those types of situations. And we certainly see that with the use of force mandated qualifications that offers, officers go through every year. And they are very, very in-depth, and they try to stay trendy with some of the things that have happened over the previous year, uh, both good and bad. And I go back to the Sammy team matter on the streetcar on that fateful day. Uh, that became a training matter because there were certainly opportunities there for things to have turned out differently. And, and I won't comment. The courts have commented on the actions of the officer. But that was certainly an opportunity, uh, fateful as it was for all involved, especially Mr. Yetim and his family, to uh, learn to do things better. Yeah, so those types of repetitive trainings, whether it's use of force, whether it's uh, verbal communications or whatever it, it is that the officers need to do, constant repetition on that is going to provide them, I think, with a greater skill set and the confidence to know what it is that they need to do when they arrive on a certain scene. Now, things are always going to potentially go sideways and you have to be adaptable. I think that a lot of that comes into the psychological assessment of the officers that they're hiring today. Mm -hmm the life skills that they bring to it. They are, we're hiring, uh, I think policing across the province is now hiring uh, an older officer than they did back when I started. Uh, so we're seeing people that are coming into it at 28, 30, 32 years of age who have had a career or two or three before they actually come into it. And with that, they bring those life skills. Supervisors and command of the day can't turn a blind eye to that skill set. Just because they may not have had it when they joined doesn't mean that they don't have something to offer and use those officers to the best of your ability to become your informal leaders on your platoons, to speak to the men and women on the platoon and on other platoons to say, oh, back when I was involved in industry X, this is what we did and this was the outcome. I think that is something that we can implement a little bit here. So use those resources to uh, make your officers better in whatever they're going to face, but know that you have to support them. And the supporting them doesn't mean blindly. You have to support them within the confines of your procedures and the law and certainly the governance and the oversight bodies, which, as you said, Luciano, are very much uh, relevant and necessary. And I agree with you. We have to have oversight. But officers also need to know that they have to be allowed to, in good faith, make mistakes mm -hmm. and own the, own the mistake and be dealt with in a fair and equitable fashion across the board when they do. Dave, I, I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, talk about uh, uh, Toronto Police in the downtown core. You were, for many years, the unit commander of 52 Division, which is uh, the division of Toronto Police that takes care of the downtown central part of the city. Probably one of the most important and influential parts of the city. You've got everything from the attractions like the CN Tower and the Rogers Centre and the uh, where the Toronto Maple Police play to the financial district. It's a big and important territory. Can you tell us a little bit about policing in that uh, this part of the city? Some of the challenges you have, the type of crimes that occur, and what's it like actually? How busy are the police? And do you have the tools you need in terms of personnel and technology to do the things that you need to do? Well, I certainly would agree with you, Brian, that 52 Division is uh, one of, if not the most important divisions in the city. I certainly touted loud and on the rooftops that it was when I was the unit commander there uh, in a very self serving fashion. My fellow unit commanders, especially in 14 Division, <laughs> one, to my immediate east and west, uh, disagreed vehemently. But in any event, uh, if you don't take pride in the place you work, then I think that would be detrimental to the men and women that work for you. And I was extremely proud to be unit commander of 52 Division. When I started, they asked you where you wanted to work. They gave you two choices. And seldom did you get your choices. 
what I asked for 52 was my first choice. And I always joked it took him 32 years to get me there. That's <laughs> 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 my final five there. Just a back step, just a little bit, Brian, if I can. So Toronto, as, as you probably know, and, and some of the listeners might know, uh, it's approximately 630 square kilometers going from the lake, including the islands, uh, up to Steeles Avenue on the north, Mississauga on the west, and uh, Pickering on the east. So the Toronto Police Service has an authorized sworn strength of about 5,500 people, so 5,500 officers going from the, the newest constable right up to and including the chief, and about a support staff of 2,000 civilians. So we're looking at about 75,000 people spread out across this, or 7,500, sorry, spread out across the city. And their main goals is um, obviously to provide that priority response. The men and women in uniform in those marked cars is really what people think about when they think about the police service. Now, those are the ones that are going to come when they call. Now, 52 Division is just one of 16 divisions that service the city. The city is broken up into two commands. Central Field Command being the downtown core, the uh, part of the city from the lake and, and up to just north of Blue or just a little bit farther north, but in any event. And Area Field Command, which you could sort of picture as a horseshoe or a rainbow going up across Central Command. So 52 Division sits from the, the actual station is just west of University on Dundas. And it polices an area from the, the lake up to Bluer and from the east side of Spadina to the west side of Young Street. So a pretty busy area. Not as large as it used to be. It was downsized a few years back when they realigned some borders. But with the downsize also came a downsize in the number of officers that worked there. I will say that 52 Division in its heyday had an excess of 500 officers working there. It no longer does. It's now in the vicinity of about 230 to 250, as I last recall it. So the type of policing, though, that 52 Division provides to that geographic area in the downtown core, full of critical infrastructure, Brian, as you hit on, and I'll say that you were just barely the tip of the iceberg there. Uh, you throw in the University of Ontario, OCAD, Queen's Park, uh, Union Station, a whole bunch of things that keep me up at night, or at least did when I was working, because there's a lot of potential for things to go bad in those places. And um, certainly that will come back into play when we talk about police and private partnerships. But essentially, 52 Division is still a priority response neighborhood. So the men and women that are out in uniform in the cars is what they do front and center. I would say that a very different aspect of 52 Division is because of a lot of the critical infrastructure and the goings-on in the downtown core, especially uh, demonstrations and protests, both planned and spontaneous, requires 52 Division to have the largest community response unit in the city. So that would be what the uh, listeners would probably think is uh, a foot patrol, men and women out on foot. But in reality, they're out on bikes and they ride bicycles year round in 52 Division for a lot of reasons. So my actual community response unit is larger than any of the frontline policing units that we had in 52 Division. So some of the challenges that we faced in 52 Division is it's an extremely busy area, but it's very congested as far as vehicular traffic and the ability to get to certain calls. And again, that's where the officers that are on bicycles can be far more effective in getting through the traffic, navigating the, the gridlock to get to where they need to be. But if you look at how 52 runs on an average day, because it is largely uh, commercial and retail, although that's changed an awful lot over the last few years, I would say the last 10 to maybe 15 years, there's been a huge increase in the number of condominium units that are being built in the area. It's certainly raising the residential base, but because it's largely commercial businesses, you see during the day, we had a large influx of people coming into 52 Division to work. So they'd be coming in largely in part on public transit, coming into the Union Station, uh, going up through the pathway or going up through the subways to go to their places of business and becoming a very vertically uh, populated division as far as the potential need for services. And then traditionally, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, we would see that number drop by hundreds of thousands of people as they would go home after work. And then we would see it rise again as people came back into 52 division to attend sporting events at the Rogers Center or the uh, Scotiabank Arena or being entertained in the entertainment district, going to movies, fine dining, all those types of things that we used to enjoy pre-COVID. So we would see two different steady streams of people coming in that, that created possible needs for policing for those for these events and for people just being in the area. Challenges, again, that we faced would be trying to determine where the actual radio calls were coming from. Uh, if you're getting a call for the 40th Tower 
you know, it's a 40th floor of a tower in the financial district, you know, say 77 King for the sake of the story. Uh, it's quite confusing uh, for the officers arriving to, am I at the right building? Where are the numbers? Is it my on Adelaide or am I on King? Or, and those types of things cause problems. And that was often where we relied on our, our private partners, even the, the security guards to greet us at those buildings and tell us exactly where the problem is. And here's a service elevator that's ready for you and, and trying to get to it. So those types of things cause challenges. Uh, they were a little bit unique. And 52 Division does not have, prior to the condo boom, does not have a huge singular single uh, family dwelling population. A little bit of it just north of Dundas over towards uh, Spadina in that area. But aside from that, a lot of the residential was above uh, stores along Young Street, above stores, you know, small apartments, things like that. Um, but that can be quite a challenge as far as getting into them. Uh, getting people out, you have one point of access that can be a, you know, a safety issue if it's a person who does not want to come out, you're going up a narrow stairway, Any, all of those types of things that we need to talk forever uh, as far as that goes. I'm going to ask, David, you talked about the change in the city and, and you've hit on some, some important things. I think one of the big ones is that rise of the condo community to the south of 52 Division all along the, the lakeshore. And, you know, in, in, in years past, to your point, evacuating that city was basically based on the fact that everyone's going to get on the train or on the in the car and drive home, which was usually in the GTA. But now, if you're in that 52 division area, especially, uh, those people aren't going out to the GTA anymore. They're basically going just across the street to their house, and that's got to add significant stress and resource demands to uh, a division that was initially built really to to your point to monitor a very active commercial site. That's a, an interesting change, something that's significant. And the other thing I wanted to ask or add on to that was, what are your thoughts on the emerging technology, is there technology that the police service is going to be able to use or leverage to help them manage that increased presence of people? Indeed. If I could just add to what Luke's asked, do you have the tools that you need to police uh, 52 Division? Well, I would say definitely not in terms of people. I mean, everybody always wants to have more police officers. And, and I think that the biggest problem that comes with that, as you gentlemen are aware, is the cost of having more police officers. So, you know, float back to what I mentioned earlier, having an authorized sworn sense of approximately 5,500 officers comes with that a huge price tag for, for salaries and for benefits. And you will recall there was quite a, an uproar uh, a couple of years ago when the, when the budget first hit a billion dollars. Uh, and again, 90, 92, 93% of which is salaries and benefits uh, negotiated by the police services board with the police association. But that, that, that's an aside. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. So more police officers would certainly help. But the, the planning has to be there as far as technology goes to assist with that. Uh, technology's evolved quite a lot since I retired. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite up to date on it as I was when I was working. But certainly uh, I would love to see more CCTV cameras throughout the downtown core. And there's a vast, large section of the public that I won't say they're okay with it. They just really don't care because it doesn't impact them. And we could interpret that they're okay with it, and perhaps they're not. It's, it's like police support. You know, 99% of the people that like the police don't have to deal with the police. And it's that it's you know, the senior citizens living in Don Mills love the police. If you ask them when they last encountered the police officer, it was in 1943 when they did something for them. And that's not a bad thing. That's It's good to live in a city like Toronto and not need the police. But it's the, the people that who are very vocal uh, against the police and, and have privacy concerns, and I acknowledge privacy concerns are real, that are always going to be saying uh, it's too much uh, overwatched by the police. Uh, they're infringing on my rights, and I don't want CC cameras. Uh, CCTV cameras anywhere. And as, as a quick note, CCTV cameras in Toronto are not being manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. That they are there to record in certain areas where justification has been made to the privacy commissioner to have them put into place. And they're in there for a certain duration of time. They have been, I can tell you, a senior commander in 52 division, very beneficial in a lot of our investigations, especially as far as uh, shootings or disturbances outside of certain nightclubs. Uh, in the downtown core. Uh, so, so the more of those, I think the better it would be great to be able to see when there is a situation which like you've, uh, you've uh, hit on there, uh, a mass evacuation and, you know, you're sending people home, but home is across the street. Uh, what are we facing on corner? Is, is there 4,000 people standing there who can't get anywhere? And if that's the case, then how do you mitigate that type of a risk when you have that very bad day and get those people going where they need to go. And that certainly is not just the role of the police. That certainly is the role of our, our private partners in the downtown yeah. core. And I would suggest elsewhere, any police officer, a police commander that's not 
forming partnerships with his private sector and his, his commercial real estate security experts. And, and you gentlemen are experts. I, I learned an awful lot from you every time we talk. You, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the people that place a disservice by not forming and maintaining and building upon those types of relationships. Going back to the condo boom, just real quickly, provided a whole new set of challenges in the downtown core in the absentee landlord type. Because when these condos were being built, they were built for a certain clientele. Be that what it may, I don't want to spell on that, but a certain clientele. And I think a lot of it was envisioned that the clientele was going to live in the condo or maybe rent it out to their cousin, brother, aunt, uncle. What we saw was an opportunity for organized crime to move into a lot of these condos or, or take over a lot of these condos. And, and they were running body houses, human trafficking, meth labs, all kinds of things that were not expected when you buy a very high-end, luxurious condo with security in the building and somebody on the front door 24-7, you're not expecting to have a meth lab next door. You're not expecting to have human trafficking going on on the floor above you or the floor below you. But that is reality with organized crime. Anytime there's an opportunity, you know that organized crime is going to try to move into there and maximize it to the best of their benefits. Organized crime is, is, is something that is of great interest to me because I, I did uh, I worked for organized crime with CFSU for a number of years. It, it always amazed me how the public was dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that organized crime was operating in the area. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, it's a, it's a major city, you know, and we've got all the things that they talk about on movies and TVs going on in this city right under the, the surface. All you have to do is scratch or be interested in looking and, and, and it's all there. So that always interested me how people in this city are insist on, on on not seeing what they don't want to see, I guess. Um, and that's implications for policing as well, right? Because that refusal to admit that we have those issues makes it difficult for police services to table. You know, we need more resources to, to, to battle human trafficking. Well, it doesn't go on here, but it does go on. And you have that whole tic-tac discussion that uh, that complicates the, the issue and, and muddies the waters and I think unjustly leaves the police um, at a disadvantage. And I'm just going to end off with with this point before Brian jumps in, the other thing that we haven't talked about was there's an ever-increasing demand on police to do more and more of what nobody else wants to do, right? The, the one that comes to mind, obviously, is mental health. Society has failed. It, that's, a, that's a failure of government services and all those and those types of, uh, of institutes, and yet they put it on the lap of a police officer. There's, there's only so much that you can do with a person, especially when police have been called. They're already at the edge or nearing the edge of sort of no return. And, and it's difficult for a police officer responding to those types of situations to bring them back and to talk, to talk them down. That's the word I'm looking for. My apologies. I think that's another aspect that we haven't touched on. And it's definitely playing into the current situations, the struggles that police officers are having, because you can't be an expert in everything. You know, I'd like to switch gears for a second and sort of start uh, touching the area of partnerships and working together. And I just want to sort of share with uh, Dave, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but a, a story I had years ago with uh, an encounter I had meeting with uh, Chief Bill Blair. And I remember I was in his office and we had a coffee and we were just talking and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I'm going to give me uh, editorial freedom just to make the point. And at the time I was in the financial district in charge of several large office towers and I was intimately with Luciano involved in protecting the PATH network. And I remember telling the chief, I said, you know, chief, uh, there's about in the wintertime about 80, 90,000 people in rush hour during the morning, one hour period that are going through the path. There's probably about 10,000 that are up on the street, but I don't see any of uh, our police officers down the path. They're just up on the street. So I said, unless you're able, and this is tongue in cheek, we're having a, a lighthearted discussion. Unless you're able to put police officers into the path to protect those 90,000 people, because right now that's my responsibility. I want a tax reduction. So he looked at me, sort of smiled, and he says, you're not going to get one. And I, I said that because the reality is it falls to a lot of the infrastructure operators to partner uh, with the city, with the police, to make sure that the downtown core is safe and secure. One of the challenges we had is I would go to our uh, leaders, uh, the asset managers, the people who control the strings, and I would try and justify budget and increase the budget for more officers, security officers, better trained officers and technology because of the burden we had. And often they would tell me, but that's why we have the police. Just call 911 and the cops will come. Mm -hmm. We just have to hold it for about two, three minutes till the Toronto police show up and it's their problem. Can you talk to that? So I think it's going to be a little more than two or three minutes, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sad reality. And it's probably 
something that could be better communicated by police services across the province as to what response time actually is. But nobody wants to say that we're not going to be there as soon as you pick up that phone. But the reality is, and I think because I've spoken to people who believe it, that when they call the police, they think the police officer sitting in his or her car hears that call. They don't. Your call goes into the communications unit, which is a centralized location uh, off-site from headquarters, and basically it gets put into a priority sequence. So depending on what that call is, you may think, and, and rightfully so, it's the most important thing going on in your world right now at that moment because you need the police. But it might be a priority for a low-level priority call based on what else is going on in the city. And there are only so many assets sitting there waiting to respond to calls. Now, that has changed a bit over the years as far as what the police officers do see in their cars with having laptops in the cars now where they can see the calls that are sitting and pending. And sergeants can then also see them and assign cars or make callbacks to the person saying, we can't get a person there for you. Uh, immediately, it's going to take X number of minutes or hours before we can get somebody there. And they can look at other strategies to assist that person on those lower level calls. But for the people that are sitting in their in the office tower or in the path or in their retail outlet thinking that I've called the police, they're on their way as soon as I hang up the phone. Unfortunately, it's not realistic and it's not what they're going to encounter. Calls are vetted very, very thoroughly. Uh, there is a good procedure in place to ensure that police officers are being sent to the high priority calls uh, as quickly as possible. But that may re result in your lower priority call being bumped several times throughout the course of a busy day, afternoon or evening. Uh, more police officers on the street, that might not even be the answer because you're still going to have millions of calls per year that uh, are going to still be vetted in the same format. And if your priority is a four, for example, it's still going to be a four with twice as many officers on the road who still may be at the threes, twos and ones while you're sitting with. So it's not as realistic. And unfortunately, I would love to say, yeah, the police are there as soon as you hang up that phone. But I can't see that ever being a reality. And that's why they are looking at different methods of dealing with calls that require something simply as information or set up an appointment down the road for a police officer to come and see you or a civilian trained in whatever it is that you require. Let's say it's it's the taking of fingerprints off of something at a crime scene uh, rather than tying up valuable police resources that we can do that. In other ways, we've seen an awful lot of that. And going back, I know you want to move on, Brian, but just going back real quickly to what Lucha said about the uh, the issues with mental health, certainly a lot of that in 52 Division as far as a large homeless population and a large homeless population, popul population that has mental health issues uh, who are not dangerous to themselves or others. But uh, you see them sitting out there in sub-zero weather on a heating grate. And the perception of the public when they see police officers ride by them on their bikes and, and not stop to do something wrong is, oh, my goodness, why aren't you doing something for that poor person? And, and I've actually been present where I've had a police officer in response to a member of the public basically saying, you police officers don't do anything. Say, come with me and listen to this person's response when we offer to take him or her into a shelter or a hospital or whatever the case may be. And it's quite crude and it's an eye opener for the member of the public yeah. to see that you can't help somebody if they don't want help. And the officers are limited to their their powers within uh, the Mental Health Act as far as to when they can or cannot uh, apprehend a person and take them in for a psychiatric assessment. Uh, the pathway, Brian, that, that's a, that's that's a great uh, that's a great story. And you have mentioned that before, and I'm not surprised by the response that you got. Uh, the path was a challenge to us for many, many years. Thank goodness, and through people like you and Luch and your efforts, our radios didn't even work in the path for the longest time. Our radios didn't work in the subways for the longest time. And it was through collaborative partnerships with gentlemen like you and others that um, repeaters were put down into there. And, and the PathCom system, Brian, I'm sure you're going to probably talk about that a little bit later, was put into place to assist with policing that. Um, I think our biggest biggest thing is that uh, commanders, when they get up in rank, want to be in charge of everything. And I think we need to, in certain aspects, don't make it a police issue. Let the experts who know the path and know how to police the path be the ones who decide, uh, who run whatever system is going to be there from a collaborative partnership for policing the path. And I think that that needs to happen. If it hasn't happened in the years since I've retired, you're the experts in there, not me. And I certainly relied heavily on you. And when I was running major events to have somebody on the PathCom radio system in my incident command center so that we could communicate with those tens of thousands of people that working for commercial real estate in there that can get the messages out should it be a very bad day. You know, I must say, Dave, that the Toronto Police Service is an excellent police service. And in the 20-some-odd years I've been in downtown core, I've been amazed at the level of partnership and collaboration that has occurred. 
And just to give you some kudos, you one of the constant leaders in passion about the importance of partnership. And I think the important thing, and I've talked a lot over the years at different conferences on partnership, but I think the successful ingredient, the key ingredient in a successful partnership is uh, putting your egos to the side and looking at what the common goal is and how we could help each other. And you, you've been an incredible supporter, especially in the in the downtown Corn 52 division. Are partnerships nice to have or are they essential to have? What are your thoughts? And what are your thought, thoughts about the types of partnerships we have in Toronto? I think partnerships start out as nice to have. Uh, in my case, it started out as nice to have. I met a bunch of, of great men and women in the downtown core performing the roles that you both performed and the people that worked for you. And I thought that was nice. And that was just sheer ignorance on my part. I didn't understand what you did and the complexities and how important it was. And it soon became critical to me to form those partnerships to ensure that those partnerships lasted and to expand my knowledge base. Because when a very, very bad day happens, you are in the position to do an awful lot more to assist the people that fall under your uh, purview within your buildings than I can ever do with you know, 8, 10, 12, 20 police officers out on the street arriving to a building that they're not really that familiar with and not knowing your evacuation procedures or not knowing your training that uh, you put your people through as far as something as simple as a fire alarm goes. Uh, it, it was crucial to me, it really became crucial that we had a very, very tight partnership. Uh, it started out as friends over coffee, and it became much more than that, and I'm proud to say it's still friends over coffee, but it, it became critical to me to understand and maintain those partnerships because uh, you are a larger asset than I believe that I was in that downtown car on those very bad days. And that, that's part of the reason why we trained together on some of those Sunday morning exercises. You know, it, it was huge. And I wanted representation from your industry in my major command center when we were having those events going on. And I know that I always did. The PathCom radio system was always open and anything that needed to be disseminated, I, I ensured that I, it was disseminated to both of you and, and the other people in your positions across the other uh, companies. And it, I saw it twofold, though. Many a day I was sitting in my office in the 52 division and my phone would ring and it would be, you know, Luciana or Brian or, or someone from another company. I, I won't mention names here, but you probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, to say that there's uh, 15 people just popped out of the subway station at Queen University and they're carrying placards. And here's what the placards say and they're coming north. Do you know anything about it? And, and I'll be honest with you, quite often we didn't know anything about it. And that was our first bit of intelligence, and, and it was very, very helpful in a lot of situations. So any unit commander, in my opinion, that, that is not forging those types of relationships and building upon those types of relationships, uh, and, and they have to go both ways. It can't be at least dictating that you will partner with us and we will be in charge of this and here's why. They don't work. It has to be built on mutual respect and, and getting to know the people. And Brian, you've said it before. It's I should know what you have in your coffee. Uh, and, and I do. It's usually from the liquor store, but I should know what you have. <laughs> yeah, but you're sworn yeah. to secrecy. I've got to say just a very quick story right now with uh, Dave and I. Uh, years ago, as we were uh, working at uh, our jobs and seeing how we can partner together, uh, Dave is a excellent golf golfer. I'm a duffer, and he has a lot of patience. And we were out golfing one day. And at the end of the day, uh, it was a great day, and we had a couple of beers, and I went home, and I got a call the next day. Dave wanted to know if I had his club. One of his clubs was missing. And uh, I said, no, I, I don't have your club. Why would I have your club? Anyways, he said, humor me. Check your bag. And I checked my bag, and lo and behold, there was a club there that I didn't know. So I said, hey, Dave, I'm really sorry. I'll bring it to you at the office tomorrow because my office wasn't far from the police station, 52 Division. He said, that's great. I appreciate it. And just as I'm about to leave, and I'm forever in your debt because you really saved my life, he said, listen, let me know when you're coming. And I said, why? He says, because I don't know if it's a good idea if someone walks into a police station with a golf club in their hand. They may see that as an act of aggression. So I took your counsel. I called you to call the front desk, and I was able to return it uh, without any uh, problems. So thank you, Dave. I owe you. And I also owe you because... We were friends over coffee. You were a cheap date. It was really good because I didn't have an expensive account like Luciano. Well, nobody has an expensive account like Luciano. Oh, uh, geez, yeah. Part, Don't say I really that. Didn't, I really didn't. <laughs> I really didn't. I really didn't have to uh, worry myself too much though with 
with that uh, golf club story, Brian, because anybody that's seen you golf knows that you would have missed whatever you were swinging at. <laughs> Dave, all I'm saying is I am still traumatized from that encounter with that lion or wolf. I'm not sure what it was. Oh you maintain it was a rabbit, but I swear it was a wolf and I wasn't drinking. No, not at all. <laughs> so you'll be you'll be happy to hear that Pathcom is still functioning. And uh, well, last count when I left, we were up to 35 stakeholders, which was nice, and they continue to operate. But to be honest, I don't know, you know, we were struggling with, I mean, you mentioned that egos have to be set aside for partnerships to be successful, and that's 100% true. But you also have the leaders with the vision to want to go down that path. And that's, you know, to guys like you, uh, Dave and, and Glenn, and uh, others at 52 Division that that we dealt with, you, we always had that shared vision of, of working together. And I think it's important to understand that it has to be on both sides. You, you alluded to that as well. We have asset managers in particular who continue to think that, you know, that's the police's problem. And guys like Brian uh, and myself, we're constantly fighting that battle to get them to understand that, you know, just because you pay taxes doesn't mean you can walk away from a responsibility of taking care of your, of your, of your property, of your people. So I only say that to highlight the fact that it took a lot of effort to get that partnership in place. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen some of those partnerships fall to the wayside as new people came in and for whatever reason, they don't value it or maybe they had different priorities. And, and the, the situation's a little different, right? We don't have a G20 that's driving those things. We don't have a Pan Am Games that's driving those things. And maybe that's part of the problem, right? Necessity creates change. Uh, maybe that's what we're missing. I just hope that they don't get too far along and forgotten that uh, even Pathcom starts to go by the wayside because, uh, to, to your points, I found it really um, informative, important to be able to reach out to you in times of, uh, of trouble to be able to say to my boss, say, you know what, I just talked to the guy at 52 Division. He knows what's going on. I can get you the information. Don't worry about it. We're covered. And that's, that's priceless, as they say. And I wanted to highlight, again, the fact that we need people like you to step forward to make those, those partnerships effective. Yeah, to echo what we've said, it was a two-way street because I also had those same conversations with my leadership team and say, yeah, we're, you know, we've got a connection at 52 Division or Toronto Police. This is what the truth is. It's not what you heard. And uh, it, it, it was a two-way street because we also made ourselves available to you. And we realized that as good as we may have been as individuals, if we were able to work collectively, it, it created a force multiplier effect. And I think that was sort of unique with Toronto. I'll tell you, and, you know, I'm proud of it, and you should be proud of it, a lot of the initiatives or many of the initiatives that we've started in Toronto with your support and other great police leaders in uh, Toronto's support, we were able to successfully roll out in other cities across Canada. Uh, Calgary, for example, mm -hmm. we took the PathCom model. We took uh, the uh, partnership with Toronto Police. We rolled it out there, and they have, Luke, you would know better than me, but a very successful PathCom model there. I know Montreal was looking at it. So I think the power of partnerships, when you put the egos aside, when you look at what the mission is and you look at what do we have to do collaboratively, and it's not about getting credit, but what, what do we have to do to make the city better and safer for all the constituents? I think you could do amazing things. And again, I've been out of the beaten track for about three years now that I've been a consultant and away from uh, the downtown core per se. But uh, we did incredible things and we had incredible challenges that we uh, were able to make a real difference. And in part to people like Dave and minded like Dave and people like Luciano and Dave Salton and Terry Kalanick and a lot of other police people. And I better not be naming people because I'm going to forget <laughs> people. We had a great team here in Toronto. And I'm, really honored to have been part of that and to make the contacts and the friendships as a result. Yeah, I think it's been really important, Brian, and, and I'm glad to hear that it's been rolled out through other cities. And, and just to circle real back quickly to something Luch said there, you know, being a, a having to sell it, the partnership aspect to um, your stakeholders. I had the same thing in, in within the division. I had to sell it, even though I'm a commander and I had the big hammer and could say, make it so. I still had to sell it to uh, my, my community response, unit staff sergeants, the, the fellows that would be the first on the scene and women that would be first on the scene when those things did happen. And they'd be the ones that would be dealing with your frontline representatives. And, and a lot of times at first, when I first got there and I was just starting to learn the aspects of the, these partnerships, um, it was met with some eye rolls and it was met with some, oh, yeah, yeah they're nice guys. But and, and as I learned, I, I certainly had to put my foot down and say, no, there's no but. There's no but. Here's a, <laughs> as Brian said, it's a. A force multiplier. You know, here is some surge capacity. And yes, those people don't have the same powers as the police officers do, but they are highly trained 
and they know their buildings and their assets and their people far better than we'll ever know. And um, as, as I was able to sell that, unfortunately, that's a term I have to use to sell that to my people. I think we all saw the results of that. And, and for these other cities to be taking it and replicating it, it's a lot easier to steal something and implement it than it is to reinvent it. And so kudos to them for, for maybe lowering their egos a little bit and saying, yeah, this works as it is. Tweak a few things to meet our specific needs. But let, let's take it. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Or we just end up with a whole bunch of the same wheels, don't we? Luciano. You're yes, the sir. host, so we've been wrapping it up. Yeah, I just wanted to wrap it up on, uh, I mean, I think it's been a pretty good conversation, but I wanted to wrap it up with David's thoughts on uh, the way forward, right? We've talked about a lot of the challenges with policing, and certainly in Toronto, uh, but again, I, I think everything that, that happens in Toronto is applicable to any other major city. So, you know, in terms of where policing is heading, some of the challenges they have, and what you see going on in the community, where do you see them going forward to improve things? How are we going to make things better? Because right now, it really isn't in a good spot. And I'm not just talking about policing, just the relationship with the community and the media and the politicians. Do you see a way through that? How how would you recommend they try and navigate some of those waters if you're, uh, if you're a commander today? I might not be the best person to ask, Luch, because that's part of the reason that I retired when I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've actually quoted the name of uh, Toronto's last major overhaul as the way forward. I think they're calling it that or something to those uh, to those ends. And, and I'm not going to knock it. I, I'm not. But what I'm going to say is when you've been around as long as we have, uh, you know, 40, 40 plus years now, although we're on the outside looking in, um, there really is nothing brand new to do. Yeah. So a lot of what I was hearing uh, back in 2016 was no different than what I heard, you know, in the early 80s, no different than what I heard in, in, in with a few different tweaks. And again, I don't I don't want to poo poo all over it because I, I truly am not. Uh, it's it's crucial and it's important that we continue to look at ways to improve to deliver police services. Um, but a lot of it I, I was hearing from my my perspective, and that's only my perspective, is that there was nothing new here. And all of the demands that were being put upon me at that point in time as a unit commander were taught, drawing away from my ability to run my police station the way that I believe that it needed to be run. Uh, I found it frustrating at the time, but I do acknowledge that it, it is crucial that we look at ways, and there certainly is better ways to do things uh, than there were then, and I don't have all of the answers for that. But you need to keep looking as a police service introspectively to see what are the core functions of the police. And those core functions are spelled out in the Police Services Act of Ontario. They're pretty clear. And, Luch, you hit on it with the mental health issues. What ought not to be a core function of the police or a subsidiary function of the police? And a lot of those things have been thrown onto the police over the years. And I think a great thing in Toronto that they've done and I know that it's it's spread out to other services now, is the mobile crisis intervention teams, where you have a psychiatric nurse partnered with a police officer. Because a lot of times, mental health aspects do go violent. And if you just have a, a couple of social workers in there, uh, that could be very detrimental to all involved, especially you know the social workers and the person who is in crisis at that point in time. Uh, that's not an easy fix. That's always going to continue to be a challenge. But I think steps are being taken there. Uh, to make it a lot better for everybody and to get the people the help that they need in a safer fashion. Uh, technology, uh, as great as it is and being rolled out faster than I can keep track of, uh, can also be detrimental in the uh, way that the police are being portrayed in the public, especially when nowadays, as soon as any interaction happens, everybody's out there with their cell phones, photo, photo, uh, videoing it and throwing it up onto uh, Twitter, YouTube, or whatever the case may be. And, and the public in whole, as a whole, are often seeing a 15-minute snippet of a 30-minute interaction and, and putting their own spin on it. And, and parties that want to be disparaging towards police will be, and those that want to support the police often are mute, um, as there is their right to be. So I, I think that can be detrimental. And if you're always having to backtrack and say, well, here's the big picture, here's, here's actually what happened, it sounds like you're making excuses for what happened. So there's no quick fix. I mean, I mean the answer continues to be, uh, follow the legislation. That's a no-brainer. That's something you have to do. So follow the, the duties of the police officer. Train for uh, as many outcomes as you can predict. And you can't predict everything. And we learned that, gentlemen, when we were sitting with operational plans that didn't cover something that happened. Train for those things that are predictable. Um, be always cognizant of the type of person that would make the best police officers to function very effectively in the current environment. And recruit hire, promote, and retain those officers. I think officer retention is becoming an issue 
uh, in that we see a lot of a lot of people that are coming into the job now thinking that it's going to be something they'll do for seven to ten years, then move on to their next career and on to their next career. Uh, so, so retention of uh, highly trained officers because an awful lot of money and time is invested into them to be reflective of the police services that you want them to be, and to ensure that they are reflective of the communities that they serve and that the communities are being served in the way that the communities expect to be to serve. But to be to be served, and it comes back, Brian, to they are the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have certain expectations, and uh, sometimes realistic, sometimes not. And communication, the first thing that breaks down in crisis is communication, right? Communication is huge all of the time. And I think I've seen a lot of that from the Toronto Police Service right now, where, where they may be uh, eating a little bit of, of crow and saying, yeah, we haven't always done it the best way. Let's let's have some community meetings and let's uh, you know figure out what the best way to do it is and implement it with the participation of the community and meeting the community's needs. Again, though, and again, a downside is community meetings often only get the, the squeaky wheels coming out yeah. to them. You know, and, and the seniors in Don Mills, which I fall back to, are, are very happy with uh, the here that they haven't seen since 1943. Just something you said that a lot of the ideas there are no new there are new ideas, but a lot of the good things have been in place for a long time. And I recall a meeting that actually the channel myself and several other senior security leaders were at with a very senior Toronto police leader telling us just about the time they were talking about the transformation about four or five years ago, six years ago, telling us about all the great plans of partnership and how we have to work together. And we were polite because we were meeting the senior uh, police leader for the first time. But we looked at each other sort of in disbelief to say, what are you talking about? We've been doing these things for the last several years. We've gotten awards for the last several years. And you're here to tell us we've got to work together? Like, haven't you read the playbook? So, uh, you know, change is good. But you got to look at your history and you got to build rather than start from scratch. And I think that's part of some of the mistakes that have been made recently in, in, in the excitement and the political need to change or at least demonstrate change. We threw away the baby with the bathwater. And, we're, you know, a lot of the things that Luke and I and Dave Salston and Terry Chwanek and others, Roy Manius, were involved in are starting over from scratch now as great new ideas. But I guess every generation does that. I don't know. I just look at it sometimes in disbelief and some frustration. Yeah, I think I, I said that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent summary from both of you. The only thing I'm going to add before before I sign off, I think it's important to note one other thing that we haven't uh, mentioned in your summary, and that is the role of, of the businesses and the public in that change. Because the police service can change all at once. If the public doesn't accept it, obviously, or, or isn't supportive, then it's all for naught, and it just creates more... Uh, unnecessary frustration, stress, and, and the rest of it. So, you know, I would encourage and I would say that the public certainly, businesses certainly have a role to play in stepping up to the plate and making it clear to the police what exactly they want, right? What kind of services are they looking for? Understand what's available and what's not, and then take responsibility for the pieces that they need to take away. Sort of like Brian and I have, have spent a career doing with, uh, with our property, uh, our previous lives property owners, getting them to understand that the police aren't going to be there on a dime. Most likely, they've got more important things to deal with. And until the police arrive, you have a responsibility as a business owner to take care of business. I think that's an important thing to to understand uh, that our listeners should be aware of. And then the other piece is just bringing it right back to the frontline police officer, uh, you know, reaching out to, to people who are listening and making them understand that I've worked with a lot of officers, you know, both as an officer when I carried a badge and, and I continue to work and know a lot of officers. The vast majority of those guys are out there trying to do a good job. Their heart's in the right place. Um, certainly my experience with police uh, here in Peel Region, when I call them, they've been exceptional. Um, and all too often, the guys with the biggest mouths are the ones who have the most experience in interaction with police. And I wonder why. <laughs> right? There's usually an underlying reason for that. I, I would. I, I just wanted to, to mention that as we close off that you know, people need to get a reality check when it comes to what's going on in the press these days. Go beyond the the, the headline, do a little digging, and ask some questions. Don't just uh, take take a reporter's word. Certainly, somebody on social media has a word at uh, at face value because there's usually something behind uh, their comments. So, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to Brian and then David for some final words, and uh, we can sign off on this podcast. It's been really good talking with you, David. Uh, glad to see you're enjoying retirement. And hopefully we can get out on that golf course, uh, well, hopefully this summer. We'll see if COVID allows it. But uh, with that, I'm going to sign off and turn it over to you, Brian. Yeah, uh, Luke, you know, I, I echo what you say. We in Canada are very lucky, and especially in the city of Toronto, very lucky for the quality and caliber of police that we have. 
you know, I just want listeners to understand that Canada is not the U.S., and I'm not an expert on U.S. policing. I just know that Canadian policing is different. Police officers in Canada are trained differently. Use of force is uh, a last resort. You don't see like you see on American TV, and that's pop culture. Uh, someone at, uh, looks at you the wrong way and they get tased. That's not what the situation is in Canada. And, you know, I've been lucky over the last 40 years to meet a lot of uh, police leaders. And Dave McCormick is typical of the type of people that are leading most Canadian police services. Of the highest integrity, highest professionalism, and really focused on serving the community. So I'm just really honored to have you as my friend. I was sad when you retired. I think the city lost one of the good ones. But there's a lot of good people in Toronto Police, and uh, uh, the cream will continue to rise. So, Dave, thank you very, very much for joining us and uh, enlightening us and our listeners today. Well, thank you very much, both of you. It's, uh, I'm proud and happy to say that we, we are still friends and we still talk industry every now and then, but we also get a chance to talk about things that are a lot less serious on uh, more often than not. And, and I thoroughly do enjoy that. And, and I look forward to continue to do that for many, many years. A few of the things you had said there, Luch, going back, I mean, they're right out of Sir Robert Peel's Principles of Policing. And I won't say them here. Obviously, we're wrapping up. People can look them up on their own if they if they choose to do so. But uh, yeah, you, you mentioned the onus being on a lot of a lot of the business owners. Uh, and I agree with you. And again, that sort of falls back into some of Peel's principles. But uh, I always told my officers that you never know who you're dealing with. And I expect you to treat anybody that you encounter with the same type of respect in the way that you would expect your mother, your grandmother, your grandparents to be treated were they to be stopped by the police. And I think if, if they continue to have interactions based on uh, respect uh, for the people that they're dealing with, I think it goes a long way on both sides. And, and you know, you harvest what you sow. You get a lot more respect coming back towards you. And I think at the end of the day, you get a better re- resolution for everybody that had to call the police at that time. So if they continue to behave like that, I think it's going to be better for everybody involved. Well said, and I think that's an appropriate place to end off. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll talk to you on the next podcast. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.